the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Seth Liebson Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for uh, Seth tonight. We had a great show on Monday, and I, and I think we have some, uh, some terrific guests this afternoon. If you are not familiar with the Powerline website, I would encourage you to check it out. The URL is powerlineblog.com. But if you just Google Powerline, either one word or two, we will be the first thing that comes up. We've got daily fresh commentary on the news and have had uh, commentary every single day since May of 2002. So uh, I would encourage you to take a look at Powerline if you have not been in the habit of doing that. There is a lot going on in the news these days, but I'd like to start the show today talking about a story that maybe is not at the top of the headlines, but that I think is is interesting and uh, and important, and that is Sarah Palin's defamation case against the New York Times, which is being tried right now and, in fact, is going to go to the jury tomorrow. And I started writing about her case against the Times back in 2017. But, but to back up, this all goes back to 2011 when that nut, a guy named Jared Loeffner, opened fire at an event uh, in, what was it, Tucson, Arizona, and shot Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, didn't kill her, but but wounded 13 people, uh, six fatalities. He um, was a complete nut. Um, and, and, and afterwards, some people tried to blame Sarah Palin for that mass murder on the ground that her PAC had put out a a flyer or something that said that they were targeting, you know, 15 congressional districts or something like that. And they had like, you know, crosshairs like you might see in the sights of a gun on these 13 or whatever it was districts, one of which was this district in, in Arizona. Well, of course, that was completely ridiculous, this guy. There's no evidence that he'd ever even heard of Sarah Palin, let alone seen this flyer, you know, that her pack put out. And so that was quickly dismissed. But then in fast forward to 2017, the New York Times printed an editorial that was written primarily by their main editor, uh, James Bennett. And that editorial harkened back to that 2011 shooting at that time, six years in the past. And, And the New York Times editorial said that there was a clear, well, just read this, the the link, quote, link to political incitement that is between the Palin uh, Pack's map and Loeffner's murders was clear. And there was a, quote, direct, close quote, connection between Sarah Palin and these murders. They also misrepresented this flyer that the Pack put out, saying that it, it showed the, the, the faces of, of these people, including uh, Gabby Giffords in, in the sites, which is not true. It was, it was geographies on a map of the, uh, of the United States. And um, and and apparently, someone very quickly pointed out to James Bennett that that this was a big mistake because this 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 claim had been 
had been debunked. And in fact, the New York Times itself had reported in its news stories that that was totally false, that there was there was no connection whatsoever between Sarah Palin and these and these mass murders. The Times itself had reported that. And so within about within less than 24 hours, the Times actually corrected that editorial and said, oh, sorry, there was no connection. And by the way, we didn't describe the map correctly. Well, Sarah Palin then sued just, I think, a few days after that. And I wrote at the time that the New York Times is in deep trouble. You know, the standard for a public figure to recover in a defamation case is what's called actual malice. And the word malice is not used in the normal way there. It doesn't mean you hate somebody, although in this case it's clear that James Bennett hated Sarah Palin. There's all kinds of information about that. But what it means is it's a a technical term that means that you, you publish something that you either knew was false or you had no idea whether it was true or false and didn't care and published it anyway, reckless disregard. And in this case, when, when, when the editorial board of the New York Times alleges a direct connection between a political flyer and a mass murder, when its own news stories had previously said there was no connection, well, if that doesn't give you actual malice, what would? You know, I mean, I, it's, hard, it's hard to know how a plaintiff who's a public figure is ever going to have a better a better case than that. And of course James Bennett had to testify under oath that he doesn't read his own newspaper, you know. He, he either missed those stories in the Times or if he read them years ago he forgot about them. The trial judge who was obviously very sympathetic. This case is in New York by the way. It's in Manhattan, which I don't understand. I, I maybe if her lawyers had a good reason to put it there, I would have put it in Wasilla, Alaska. That's where I would have put it. But but they put it in New York. And um, and the trial judge was obviously sympathetic to the New York Times and to and to Bennett. He dismissed the case for failure to state a claim, which at the time I said was ridiculous. Um, the case was a- appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They reversed, sent it back for trial. And the case is in trial right now. And in fact, yesterday, James Bennett testified and Sarah Palin, uh, started to testify just briefly at the end of the day yesterday, and then the, the day uh, of trial picked up this morning with the completion of Sarah Palin's testimony. Um, and the case is going to go to the jury tomorrow. So very soon uh, we're going to get a result here. And, and Bill, in my opinion, um, if Sarah Palin doesn't win this case, we, we might as well just say that there is no such thing as a defamation action if you are a public figure. And if you are a public figure, it is open season. And anybody, whether it's the New York Times or the National Enquirer or, you know, whoever, can lie about you uh, with impunity. Does that, does that strike you, Bill, as, as, as the world that we want to live in? Wow. No, it does not. So a lot at stake here. You know, there are several justices on the Supreme Court who have expressed some interest in in reconsidering the law of of defamation as it currently exists. You know, defamation is a state court tort, you know, state law tort. It's not a federal offense. Um, And and in 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 the case of New York Times versus Sullivan, the Supreme Court held for the first time 
that there is a First Amendment constitutional gloss that you have to apply, constraints that you have to apply to the underlying state defamation law uh, if you are, uh, and then this has been, this has evolved in, in numerous cases that have come out since, a public official, as was the case in, in Sullivan, or a public figure, which is what we're, we're talking about here with, uh, with Sarah Palin. And the way that law has evolved with the imposition and definition of the actual malice standard, public figures just don't win defamation cases. And some people have said, forget it. You know, if you're a public figure, you, you, there's no point in, in bringing suit. And so, in my opinion, Bill, this is kind of the acid test. I mean, if this is not actionable, what the New York Times did to Sarah Palin, I, 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 don't, I don't know what's ever, ever going to be actionable. And it'll be interesting to see this potentially, if she doesn't win, uh, and, and by the way, there's probably a jury of 100% Democrats in Manhattan. Uh-oh. Uh, and so I, I, I think she, she might not win. But if she doesn't win, this could be the case that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court for a reexamination of the constitutional dimension of the law of defamation. We will be back with more on the Sarah Palin case and much more after these messages. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Before the break, we were talking about Sarah Palin's defamation case against the New York Times, which is being tried right now in Manhattan. In fact, it's going to go to the jury tomorrow. And it has the potential to be a really important case in the history of, of defamation law in the, uh, in the U.S., and and like I said before the break, if she doesn't have a good defamation case, we may as well just just acknowledge that there is no such thing if you're a public figure that you know no matter what the facts are you can't recover. There, there there's an article that I saw in Slate Slate magazine, of course a liberal outlet. You wouldn't expect to be friendly to Sarah Palin, but it was talking about what happened in in, in the courtroom yesterday, and it's pretty interesting. Bill, as an old trial lawyer, I can't help you know. Uh, following this with uh, with quite a bit of interest, it sounds like James Bennett, who is the real villain of the story, editor at the New York Times, sounds like he was a really bad witness. Um, the, the Slate writer says that Bennett spoke in a monotone and he began sentences with phrases like, my supposition is... <laughs> you know, that's that's not the, not the strongest way to, to start out your testimony when you're appearing in front of a, of a jury... Bennett said that he had regretted the mistake he made because the Times acknowledges that what it wrote about Sarah Palin was false. There's no, no question about that. But Bennett, Bennett said he regretted the mistake, quote, pretty much every day since. But the Slate writer says that he sounded more annoyed than contrite. His worst moment on the stand came yesterday when one of Palin's attorneys asked Bennett if he'd ever apologized to Palin for falsely accusing her of inciting deadly violence? Good question, right, Bill? <laughs> Something the jury might want to know. Um, and Bennett replied, my hope is that as a result of this process, I have. Whatever that means. And the bottom line is, no, he actually never has, has, has apologized to Pale. The closest he ever came was when a communications person for the New York Times emailed CNN saying that if they wanted to put James Bennett on, he would apologize on air 
But CNN wasn't interested in doing that. You know, they hate Sarah Palin as much as the New York Times does. And so that that never happened. Uh, and so bottom line, no, actually, he never has apologized for for falsely accusing Sarah Palin as causing that mass murder in in uh, Arizona. He also testified. This is interesting that he subsequently learned that the New York Times policy is not to apologize for errors. So he was bound by his employer's rules. So apparently not a very sympathetic uh, defense being, being mounted here by, by James Bennett and the, and the Times. Conversely, even this slate writer, who you got to assume is a liberal, it sounds like uh, when Palin began her testimony yesterday, she was only on the stand for 15 or 20 minutes before they broke for the, for the evening, but it sounds like she came across pretty well. The slate writer says that, that that short time was long enough for her to describe what it's been like to live in Wasilla, Alaska, since she was in second grade. Quote, you're missing out. She said to the jury when her lawyer surmised that none of the jurors had ever visited Wasilla. <laughs> and, and the slate writer says that, that Palin smiled more at the jury in those 15 minutes than James Bennett did in the five hours that he was on the stand. So you never know, Bill, but it sounds like uh, the case is, you know, is going pretty well. One thing that, that, that just... I, I find it, you know, talk about grasping at straws. Apparently, the lawyers for the New York Times think it is a big deal that Sarah Palin was on some TV show called The Masked Singer. Do you know about that? I don't know anything about this stuff. It's some, some stupid reality TV show. Somebody goes on the stage and sings, but they're, they're in a costume. And, and apparently, contestants try to figure out who they are or something. I don't know. And and then they take the, the head thing off, you know, and reveal who they are. But the Times lawyers were desperate. There was there was there were pretrial motions made about whether they could bring up the masked singer. And and they did. They asked her about it. And Palin said that that appearance was, quote, the most fun 90 seconds of my life. And also it paid some bills. So I don't I don't I don't think they're scoring any major any major points there. So anyway, we'll we'll see. You know, we'll see whether uh, whether the jury goes uh, Palin's way despite the fact that they're trying the case in New York City and how it turns out. You know, John, I wanted to ask you how does this case compare to the Nick Sandman case? Yeah, good question. That was probably the last really famous defamation case. Um and of course Nick Sandman was that 16-year-old boy, innocent kid who was part of a group from a Catholic high school in Cincinnati that attended the anti-abortion rally uh, in Washington. And he and his classmates were just standing there waiting for a bus to come and pick him up. And then a Native American activist comes along and he walks up to Sandman. He actually works his way through a group to get up to Sandman. And he starts banging his drum Sandman's face. And this little 16-year-old kid is standing there completely innocent anything. And and people are filming this, and then people like CNN and the Washington Post put up this video, and they accuse Sandman of various things and say they want to punch him in the face, and he's a racist and a white supremacist and so on. And he sues. And, and we don't know how much money he got, but we do know that CNN and the Washington Post both wrote him a check, settled with him, 
and uh, he's up, he's under a confidentiality agreement, so he can't say how much he got. On Twitter, somebody said, hey, Nick, I understand you can't tell us how much you got, but go out and buy a Maserati so at least everybody knows you got a lot of money. I don't, I don't think Sandman did that. But a basic difference, Bill, is that he was not a former candidate for the vice presidency. He was not a public official. He was not a public figure. He was a 16-year-old kid nobody had ever heard of. And then, of course, we have the doctrine of the involuntary public figure. So there have been cases where media outlets that that got caught lying about somebody said, well, for legal purposes, you didn't used to be a public figure, but we made you a public figure by running this story about you. And so now you have to meet the actual malice standard because you are an involuntary public figure. Not a great theory, in my opinion. And, uh, and Sandman, as a, as a totally unknown 16-year-old kid, um, should not have been subject to this elevated um, standard of proof. And that's probably why the Washington Post and, the, and CNN and maybe others uh, were persuaded to, uh, to, to settle with him. So we'll see what happens. I, I, I hope she wins. I hope the jury awards her a, a ton of money. Um, and if not, it'll be interesting to see whether this is the case that makes its way to the Supreme Court. And maybe we get a reconsideration of what the law of defamation ought to be. We're going to run to a break. And when we come back, we will be joined by the Manhattan Contrarian. Welcome back. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Seth today, and we are joined now by Francis Menton, proprietor of an excellent website called the Manhattan Contrarian. And if you're not familiar with it, you should Google it, check it out, Manhattan Contrarian. It is a terrific site. Francis, thanks for being on the program. I'm honored to be here. Francis, I want to talk um, about a topic that you and I have both written about a lot over the years, and that is uh, so-called green energy. And in particular, a, a post that you did on the Contrarian site a few days ago, um, the title of which is The Shifting Politics of the So-Called Green Energy Transition. And maybe we should set the stage by just talking a little bit about when we say green energy, basically we mean wind and solar, right? That's how I would normally understand it. I think those are the only two that are uh, acceptable to environmentalists. Yeah, green is kind of a term a term of art because the truth is nuclear energy is green, but of course uh, they, they don't count it and they don't tend to count uh, hydropower either. But we've been told now, uh, by the left for for some years that we're that we're in the midst of this great transition away from fossil fuels and pretty soon we're, we'll be getting all of our energy from these allegedly uh, green sources and as you've been writing for a long time Francis I mean that's just not going to happen I, I sure don't think it's going to happen and I think there is basically a limit of around 50% plus or minus of how much uh, of your energy, particularly electricity, you can get from wind and solar before everything spins out of control, or basically you hit a wall. Um, And I'd say electricity, but there really isn't any strategy for 
getting rid of fossil fuels in most of the other sectors like home heat, transportation, industry, agriculture, airplanes, other than electrifying them. So they're, they all face the same limit ultimately. And, and one of the fundamental problems, of course, is that both wind and solar uh, energy are intermittent. They're weather dependent. So wind turbines only uh, work when the wind is blowing, but not blowing too hard, and the temperature's in the right range. And obviously solar panels only work uh, when the sun is shining and they're not covered up with snow and ice. And, and the reality is that most of the time, uh, wind turbines don't produce electricity, and at least in the climate where I live or you live, the huge majority of the time, solar panels don't produce electricity. They, you, you can get actually quite easy to get uh, data on percent of capacity produced over the course of a year by wind and solar facilities. Uh, other than like in the Sahara Desert, California uh, maybe beats it sometimes, but other than unusual, unusually sunny places, uh, solar tops out at a, around a little over 20%. And that's 20, it produces 20% of the electricity that its rated capacity would suggest if it produced at 100% all year long. It only produces about a fifth. Wind uh, does better. It's more like 35 to 40 percent, although it depends on location. So I think Minneapolis would be pretty windy, but uh, a lot of places well, are a lot less windy. So, well, I'll tell you what's windy. What's windy, Francis, is North Dakota. What they do is they put the wind turbines up about uh, 200 or 250 miles or 150 miles away from the Twin Cities, and then they build transmission lines to take the electricity where it gets consumed. And one of the things going on here, Francis, is that wind and solar are both unbelievably expensive ways to generate electricity for reasons that the the advocates of those so-called green sources never want to acknowledge. Number one, whenever they they build wind and solar, they also build natural gas plants because during the 60% of the time when the wind turbines aren't producing any electricity, what keeps the lights on? The answer is natural gas. And they never want to count the transmission lines or any of the other ancillary costs. And so we're talking about an incredibly expensive way to intermittently produce electricity. We're going to be back with more, uh, hopefully on an optimistic note, with uh, <laughs> Francis Menton right after these uh, commercials. Welcome back. We are talking with the Manhattan contrarian, Francis Menton. Francis, before the break, we were talking about some of the reasons why uh, wind and solar energy are just inherently flawed and and never really going to work, candidly. And I want to go back now to to the piece that we started out with, which which you wrote on, on on the contrarian, the title of which is The Shifting Politics of the so-called green energy transition. And this is an optimistic piece. You think that the politics are sh- are starting to shift here. Tell us why. Uh, I do. You might call me crazy. Uh, but I would like to point out uh, that if you go back not so many years ago, uh, the Republican Party in the United States was probably majority bought into the climate scam and and to 
wind and solar energy as the fix. And I would point out to you that uh, McCain, who was the Republican candidate for president, supported that. And Romney, who was the Republican candidate for president in 2012, supported that. And I, I, I think I mentioned in that piece that I actually went to a Romney fundraiser in the summer of 2012. Somebody convinced me to go there, and I actually gave the guy some money and had to listen to him give a speech about how he was going to save the planet with wind and solar energy. And I got into a shouting match would be to I got into some kind of a debate with him about that and with his uh, New York campaign manager after the event. I didn't bring him around. And Romney is still in the Senate, so it's not 100 percent with the Republicans. But but there has been a huge change in the Republican Party so that the Republican Party is very close to unanimous on this issue now. And and go over to Europe. Uh, if, if you go over to Europe, they haven't had any skeptic party. Every party is on board. That has been true in England. That has been true in Germany. Uh, France, of course, has nuclear energy, so it's a different uh, situation. I could go into some detail on that with you, but that's probably less important for this. The important thing that's going on right now is in England, uh, where the costs of wind and solar are starting to hit because they have suppress natural gas so that they are now dependent on world markets and Russia to back up their wind and solar and when, and their shortages and the price is spiking. And uh, the Conservative Party is the only possible place where there's going to be political opposition uh, or uh, to the wind-solar energy juggernaut. And, of course, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is in the tank. But there is a big movement among the backbenchers right now to uh, go the opposite way, and I think they're going to get rid of Johnson before you know it. Well, and for good reason, because in your piece at The Contrarian, Francis, you highlighted the same article from the London Times that I wrote about in Powerline, and it's really striking. The headline says, Britain's facing biggest drop in living standards. And it talks about the fact that that living standards in in Great Britain are are being damaged by the cost of of energy to a, to an extent several times greater than than what they suffered during the recession of um, of two thousand nine, and um, and things are really getting dire over there. I, I know you follow this closely, uh, but I, I want to just uh, uh, tune you in to something very useful. There's something called the Global Warming Policy Foundation. It's based in London. It's run by Benny Pizer, and he puts out an email with all the uh, uh, links to useful news on this in uh, the UK and focus, but also around the continent multiple times a week. Uh, and I'm on the actual, the, the uh, I'm actually the president of the American Friends of that organization. And um, here is the latest. The latest is that they had put in caps on how much your utility could increase your home energy bills. And however, those caps only last for a certain period of time. And then 
you come to the next cap. Well, there's a price rise coming up in April, and it's a big one. It could be doubling for a lot of people of their home energy costs or close to doubling. And I, I think that is specifically what that Times article was talking about. Now, then the Johnson government has every kind of scheme to uh, throw in subsidies, pass out handouts to people to subsidize their electric bills to soften the impact. But there there are very serious limits on how much they can do with this. They're, they are really running out of runway. <laughs> Well, price fixing, price fixing never works. You know, I mean, they, 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 they fix the price, they put a cap on it, but you, you can't sustain it when the, the truth is that the energy costs much more than that. Yes. And, and one of the things that's happened in Britain is that, uh, they put a cap on what your utility can charge you, but they didn't, the utility has to buy natural gas on the world market. So the world market price of natural gas has spiked. Uh, it hasn't so much spiked in the U.S. because we have fracking. Um, but the, the, the world price has tremendously spiked. And they have had a wave of dozens of bankruptcies of these local utilities that provide the uh, the uh energy, electricity, and natural gas to homeowners. So they're looking at a wave of blackouts, uh, people unable to heat their homes. I mean, it's really, it's getting serious. And and uh, as you know, Francis, my organization, American Experiment, does a, a great deal of work on energy. And we have a quarterly magazine, Thinking Minnesota, and we run a poll every quarter in conjunction with our magazine. And we've polled these these energy issues several times. And what we've found is that uh, there's a lot of support out there. And we're pulling Minnesota, of course. There's a lot of support out there for green energy. If you if you just ask the question, you know, are you in favor of wind and solar? Yeah, you know, sixty five percent or something will say yeah. No but, problem. But one of the things that we find in our polling is that that support is wide, but it's not deep. And so if you ask questions about cost, you know, how much extra are you willing to pay for wind and solar as opposed to uh, coal, natural gas, nuclear? The answer is almost nothing. And the and, and same thing about global warming. You do think global warming is a big problem? Yeah, most people will say I do. You know, that's the expected answer. But if you ask how much are you personally willing to spend to solve that problem, the answer is like, you know, 10 bucks. And uh, and so I, I hope that you're right and that uh, when the consequences of reliance on these intermittent sources become obvious, the support collapses quickly. Can you stay with us for one more short segment, Francis? Yes, I can. I want to we tell will... you how much price increase is coming. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get to that right after uh, these messages. We're back now with Francis Menton. Francis, this is a short segment, just three or four minutes. But mm-hmm. let's get to the, the point that you made right before the break. We've been talking about the, the coming collision with reality that, that, that green energy is, is encountering. What are we looking at in terms of, of cost increases? Well, earlier in, uh, in our discussion, you talked about why wind and solar aren't so cheap for a variety of reasons. You need natural gas backup. Uh, so you have a double system, two full generating systems. Uh, 
plus extra transmission. And these things can drive up the cost of people's electricity by 50% or 80% or even double, as has happened in California and Germany, for example. But they only get you to about 40 or 50% of your electricity from wind and solar. Suppose you want to get to 100. You have to get rid of the natural gas backup and replace it with batteries. And, and it turns out that wind and solar are very seasonal. You can think about solar. It's obvious. With wind, it's less obvious. But if you look at wind data for a year, it is very seasonal. And you need, uh, considering solar, the difference between summer and winter, you need to store up huge amounts of power from the summer for the winter with solar. It's like 30 days worth of power. For the, for the United States, it's hundreds of thousands of gigawatts of uh, gigawatt hours, not gigawatts, but gigawatt hours of power has to be stored up. The cost is in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. It would be a multiplying of electricity bills, not by 50%, extra 50% or 80%, by, but by a factor of 50 or 100, spending the entire GDP of the country on this. It's completely ridiculous, and it's not going to happen. But the question is, when is... When is that wall going to be hit? It will be hit. Not so long from now, because crazy people are pushing toward this. And and they don't know how to count. They don't know how to do arithmetic, and they don't realize it's coming. No, I mean, there's not enough battery storage in the world to even remotely begin to satisfy that that demand. I mean, we're talking about a mining and manufacturing and transportation project never before undertaken in world history. I mean, it is it not. Can't it it can't happen. It cannot happen. It, it, it cannot happen, and it will not happen. The problem is that the amount of wealth that is being needlessly destroyed in the meantime is just, uh, it's, it's catastrophic. Uh, I'm with you. I, I, I think the voters need to wake up. The, the good news is, well, maybe it's bad and good. The bad news is you will never convince them with science. And I, believe me, I've been trying to do that for We'll years never convince them with science, success. but we'll convince but them with convince bills them that with can't cost. be paid, right, with costs That's that right. can't be met. Francis, thanks so much for being on the program. We're going to run to a break and come back with more on the Seth Leibson Show. Great to talk to you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 